0: Typically, Charlie or somebody else would come out and lead us through a call and response. I want to do it today, but I want to do it through something that we've used for the last several years, maybe seven or eight years, and it is just an excerpt out of a sermon that was preached in 167 AD. This is the oldest extant Easter sermon found on record. So we've done this every year. It's a little bit of a tradition, and this is the only day that we do it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you for a little bit, and then in a moment I'm going to invite you in to read with me, and we are together going to do this call to worship. This is called This is Jesus from Melito of Sardis. And he says, When the Lord had clothed himself with humanity, and had suffered for the sake of the sufferer, and had been bound for the sake of the imprisoned, and had been judged for the sake of the condemned, and buried for the sake of the one who was buried. He rose up from the dead and cried aloud with this voice, who is he who contends with me? Let him stand in opposition to me. I set the condemned man free. I gave the dead man life. I raised up the one who had been entombed. Who is my opponent? I, he says, am the Christ. I am the one who destroyed death and triumphed over the enemy and trampled Hades underfoot and bound the strong one and carried off man to the heights of heaven. I, he says, am the Christ. Therefore come all families of men, you who have been befouled with sins and receive forgiveness for your sins. I am your forgiveness. I am the Passover of your salvation. I am the lamb which was sacrificed for you. I am your ransom. I am your light. I am your Savior. I am your resurrection. I am your King. I am leading you up to the heights of heaven. I will show you the eternal Father. I will raise you up by my right hand. Now go ahead and read this with me. This is the one who made the heavens and the earth, who in the beginning created man, who was proclaimed through the law and prophets, who became human via the virgin, who was hanged upon a tree, who was buried in the earth, who was resurrected from the dead, who ascended to the heights of heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has authority to judge and to save everything, through whom the Father created everything from the beginning of the world to the end of the age." This is the Alpha and the Omega. This is the beginning and the end, an indescribable beginning and an incomprehensible end. This is the Christ. This is the King. This is Jesus. This is the General. This is the Lord. This is the one who rose up from the dead. This is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. He reveals the Father and is revealed by the Father, to whom be the glory and power forever. Amen. And amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. And happy Resurrection Day. Can you believe that what we just read is 1,855 years old? And it it sounds like it could have been written yesterday, right? Because the same consistent truth has been declared and redeclared by trillions of people in every language and tongue and nation. It's the most important truth in human history, what we just read. Let me say that again. That is the most important truth in human history, this truth of Easter. And just to give you a a picture of what happened on this day that we're celebrating with such big fanfare, it says in Luke 24, and we're not going to be in this passage today, so just hang with me. It says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Listen, the, the tomb had one job. That's it just to hold a broken body, but it was mocked by God as Jesus rose from the dead, only to pivot around and put death itself in the grave, and from that point forward, death would be denied any victory and would lose its sting for all of God's people, so listen to me, if you're in Jesus today, you will pass from this world, but you will never die, that's a promise, And he is a promise keeper. He is the firstborn from the dead. So it only gets better from here on out for those of us who are in Christ. It only gets better. So, yes, happy Resurrection Day. And congratulations. Because I don't know if you know this, but you were officially 106 days into your New Year's resolutions. (laughs) I know I'm supposed to talk about that in 258 days I'm way early and if you if you go to Legacy you know that's my favorite day of the whole calendar year is New Year's and you can't believe I'm even talking about it right now but I just wanted you to know that you are already 28 percent done with your New Year's resolutions do you hate me for saying that Listen, you got plenty of time to get those things going. In fact, you have 258 days starting tomorrow. You don't even have to start today. You can start tomorrow. You got plenty of time. We had so much change in mind for this year, didn't we? So much hope to change. We really meant it this year. I did. And even though we like to say anyone can change, we typically don't mean ourselves when we say that. We typically have somebody else in mind. That person can change, that person can change. But we are less than semi-convinced that we can change. And I'm talking about change in the important ways. Because we've tried to change before, haven't we? Tried really hard. And we couldn't get the needle to move very far. So what do we do? We try again, don't we? And then we come back from a fresh angle, fresh advice, and we try to change again and we still can't change. And then we try again and again and again. And I'm not talking about the eating less carbs type of change. Change, capital C. I'm talking about change that matters. The makeover of the soul that we hope for when we want to lose an addiction, or maybe put down some disappointing pattern, maybe change the way we feel, change the way we see, change the way we think, that change just feels impossible. I mean, it feels impossible, doesn't it? Ridiculously impossible. In neuroscience, they call this change immunity. That's what psychology calls it, change immunity. It's an inability to change, not because we're opposed to change at all. It's because we have some underlying, what they call competing commitment. A competing commitment where you have a commitment to something that is fighting against you in your attempt to change. So imagine a toddler with two hands and three toys. Just competing commitments swirling around, wanting to do something different, but they can't help but to keep doing what they're doing. You see people like this when they have an addiction, like a very deep addiction. What what I usually say something that they pick up and they just can't put down, right? They cry out for change. They really want change. You can see it in their eyes. You believe it. It's real. And yet they are ultimately committed to something deeper. There is a competing commitment to whatever it is the addiction is giving them as far as a feeling. And eventually the question of why can't I change turns into a resolute statement of, I can never change. And again, neuroscience speaks in on that, and they call that a sense of learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. It's whenever we see ourselves as unchangeable, unable to do it. We can't do it. We have no control over our life, so we just stop trying. Even though we have answers in front of us, we have opportunities, we have people that want to help, open doors, we just stop trying. What's the use is the voice of a learned helpless person. What's the use? Why do I even keep trying? I can't change. I think so many people, and you know this to be true, so many people live with this learned helplessness. What's the use? Maybe that's you. Maybe that's you, or if you're watching online, maybe that's you. Maybe you've learned how to change in small degrees. Change lowercase c, but where it matters, where it matters, it feels impossible. This is ultimately an Easter issue, by the way. The, the empty tomb is the greatest reversal in history, where death itself was changed, where chaos and entropy was changed, where sin was done away with. So if you are somebody who pulls your life out every now and then and looks at it and turns it over in your hands and sees it from different angles, hoping to see change, but you never do, you just see the same, same problems, same remedies, same results, same pain over and over and over again, then you need to know that the resurrection of Jesus has the highest of applications for you. It's not a dusty doctrine that we pull out and dress in pastel once a year. Jesus makes us a people not helpless. He makes us a people not immune to change. That's the beauty of the resurrection. The same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit of God that worked really hard on that day is still working very hard in the lives of his people because we're an Easter people. We're an Easter people, a people of the empty tomb. And when we do change, it displays the glory of God. When we change, it declares that God wins, that he is good, that he is thoughtful. It shows and reveals his majesty. Now, if you don't go to Legacy or you bounce in occasionally, we have been going for the last 14 weeks, we've been going through the book of Acts, right? And I know it's Easter Sunday, And we're going to do Acts today. And you're probably thinking, man, we're supposed to do something totally different on Easter, but we actually built the entire scheme of Acts for these six verses on this day. We built this a year ago, that this would happen on this day because Saul finds life. Saul, the terrorist, bumps into the truth of an empty tomb. And it doesn't just change him, it changes history. And I think it's valuable for us to look at whenever we celebrate what God has done on Easter morning. Because when we find Saul, he looks immune to change. He looks stuck. And he is stuck. So let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. So if you have a Bible or an app you use, we're not going to do but just six verses today, so we're going to move kind of quick. But we're going to be in Acts 9. And that's where you can stay. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. And we're going to see Christ incredibly crystal clear today. It says the conversion of Saul would be the heading. In verse 1, it says, but Saul... Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, pause. This guy's a jerk, okay? Saul's a jerk. That's what I thought the very first time I met him. When I was a teenager and I was reading the Bible for the first time, I would get to learn who this was. And I thought, this guy is so intense and so unhappy, he probably never got invited to any parties. This is the guy that would show up to a party and would start ranting or go on a diatribe. And everybody just wished he'd shut up and was wondering who invited him. Because he's so overly intense. And when I first met Saul in the Bible, I didn't actually put two and two together to realize that this is the same guy that wrote 13 books in the new testament (laughs) y'all are thinking you didn't know that you probably didn't either someone had to tell you too but if you didn't know this Saul is Paul they're the same guy right it's amazing I was so confused because there is so much difference between the before and after that it seems like two totally different guys it couldn't be any further apart in one moment we have a terrorist and then the very next we have an evangelist how on earth did that happen how on earth did that happen? And, and listen, we all love a good before and after picture, right? We just do. It's ubiquitous in marketing because marketers know that, right? Or videos, right? We love a before and after. I was in the kitchen the other day with Paula and my youngest, and we were watching a video on how some guy, much smarter than me, figured out a way with a lathe to turn a pine cone, a pine cone, into coffee spoons, right? So when I saw the heading, I thought, no, <laughs> I'm not buying it. I watched, I watched him do it, and I enjoyed it with 27 million other people, ran upstairs and showed it to my wife. You're not going to believe this. He's holding a pine cone. Those are about to be coffee spoons. Don't believe me? Watch this, right? And we watched it, but we all love that. K- kitchen makeovers, how to get shredded abs. The before and the after draws us in, and this is why marketers use it, because when you see the before, you have a sense of connection and attachment. Well, that that, that guy kind of looks like me. That's what my bathroom looks like. I I also don't know how to change the oil. I can't cook spaghetti, right? I don't know how to do those things, right? And then the after comes, and you sense this tangible change, and it feels like it's within reach, right? If that person can run a marathon, maybe I can run a marathon, right? That's what we do. We love before, after pictures, but this is what we know. Without a before, the after just doesn't cut it, does it? It's out of context. And so Saul's before is terrifying, but it puts the after in context. In fact, we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 8, verse 3, and just stay where you're at. I'm going to read it. It says this, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Ravaging. Ravaging. Who is ravaging. By the way, that word shows up in the Old Testament. The original language engenders a wild, ravenous animal. That's what we're supposed to picture in our mind. A destructive beast who is breathing murder and threats. We just read in, in chapter 9. Breathing murder and threats. Interesting term there. When we first moved here, I was trying to get some work done in a coffee shop. And across I, I the coffee shop, there was a couple young moms that were having a conversation or attempting to have a conversation because their toddlers were going to make it very hard on them to do that, right? And it was just, just distracting enough for me to pick up the context of what was going on, and I watched it out of the corner of my eye. I could not believe what I saw. One of the moms reached into her purse and pulled something out to occupy her son, and it was a harmonica, a harmonica. So many questions. Why does she have a harmonica? She's not like a a blues traveler or something, but she's got a harmonica. And she thought in a public place, this is perfect for my son. The kid pulls it out and inserts it in his mouth to where his lips go all the way around it and he doesn't have to use his hands, right? Pretty innovative kid. So he's marching around this coffee shop breathing through the harmonica in... Sounds like harmonica. Out, sounds like harmonica. He's breathing the harmonica. It's not music, by the way. It was unhelpful noise for exactly 33 minutes. Not 32, (laughs) but 33 minutes. Breathing. Listen, here, what we see is a picture of a man. Of a man that everything he saw, everything he said, everything he did was filtered. Filtered. It was filtered through this intense rage and hate and incredible self-righteousness. He was breathing murder and threats. He and, and listen, they didn't choose him to take extradition orders to Damascus, which is what he did. They didn't ask him, they didn't submit it to him. He volunteered. He got a posse. And volunteered, that's the kind of guy we're talking about. He was a wild animal that wanted to purge the entire world of this thing called the way. So he travels about 150 miles, which would have taken him a week to do this, just to kick everything over, just to rip up families, just to destroy anything that looked and smelled like Jesus. Friends, this is not the guy who's pastoring Timothy in the New Testament. This is not the guy who wants to become all things to all people to save a few. This is not the guy that's ministering tenderly to a toxic church like Corinth. Not the same guy that's kneeling on the beach and praying with the Ephesian elders through thick tears as they say goodbye to each other. This is not the same guy. It's not. But suddenly he experiences the living Jesus. A Jesus not in the grave but firstborn from the dead and he is alive and this Jesus changes him. Changes him. Let's look and see what that looks like in verse 3 of chapter 9. So jump back into where we were. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city that you will be told what you are to do. Okay, let's... Pause there for a moment. This might be the second most important moment in all of church history, second only to the bloody cross and the empty tomb. This is it right here. History hinges here. And the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead turns this wolf not into a sheep, but into a shepherd. Because that is the power of what God's spirit can do in broken people. In fact, we see in Romans 8, the same Paul, not Saul anymore, but Paul writes to a different people. And he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Effectively, God takes our before and turns it into an after. And Paul, no longer Saul, loved to talk about this. In fact, you'll find just in Acts alone, just in the book of Acts, he will look for opportunities here or there to give his story, to tell the story of of what God has done. And there's one in chapter 26. Again, stay where you're at right there. You don't have to turn there. This will be up on the screen for you. In verse 14, he actually put some flesh behind this story of him getting knocked down and being blinded by light. And it says this, And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant in witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Okay, so we've got this moment where ironically his eyes were blinded, but finally his dark heart could see. It swaps. Can't see out of his eyes. His heart finally has vision. And he would go on to declare a gospel that moves you and me, you and me, from darkness to sight. Before, after. Dark to light. Blind to sight. He goes on to tell the church of Corinth in his second letter to them. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them From seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For God said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That sounds like a bunch of religious words squished together if you don't take time to just read them. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God In the face of Jesus Christ. So, to know God's glory in the person of Jesus is to see, to finally see, and to change. To know God's glory in the person of Jesus is to gain a commitment that has no competition, an affection that rivals all affections. Because, as Paul says, just as God said in the beginning, Let there be light, darkness would flee. And then later, God would say on resurrection morning, let light enter the tomb, and then death would flee. And now God is saying to a broken Saul, let light enter his soul, and an enemy becomes a friend. We have a before after God. Turns out, you can change. You can change. And I say that without knowing whatever you're boxing with right now. I don't know. What matters that you find yourself unable to get the the ball down the field? You feel like you gain a few yards, you lose a yard. I don't know what that is. You take a punch, you you give a punch, whatever metaphor you want to use, something that has got you in a place where you say, I am stuck. I can't change. I've always been like this. I I don't know any way to to live other than this. This might be the way I'm going to be forever. Maybe I just have to get used to this. Maybe I have to accommodate and just adapt to this way of life because I can't change. I don't know what that is for you. You do, though. You know what that is. But you can change powerfully. And not just because you have it in you. You can change because you have the Holy Spirit in you. You can change not because you're impressive, but because you have an impressive spirit at work in you. You're not helpless. You're not immune to change. Not for one second. The same Spirit of God that enlivened Jesus, making him the firstborn of all death is alive in his people. Same spirit. How do I know? Because we have an evangelist that used to be a terrorist and now he's declaring a living Jesus who used to be dead. (laughs) It's fascinating. It's fascinating to me. And I really can't say it better than Melito says it way back in what is now Turkey. He says, this is the Christ. This is the king. This is Jesus. This is the general, this is the Lord, this is the one who rose up from the dead, this is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Listen, my head agrees with that, and I know yours does too when you read that, but how can I change my addictions? How can I change my patterns that are sick? How can I change my sticking points, my my places of unbelief? How does that change? I'll tell you, you cannot change by only trying to hate those things that compete with Jesus but by loving Christ so much that nothing can compete, that nothing competes. The only way to flush out a toxic affection is to have a bigger affection in your heart. It's the only way to do it. If you want to beat insecurity or lust or anxiety or fear, you can't just slap your wrist and self-punish whenever you feel those things. And you can't really just pep talk your way out of it either, can you? I think we all know that, it's your love for Jesus that will replace the need for what lust gives you, the need of what anxiety promises you. We wage war with sin, but without a growing and groomed affection for Jesus in our hearts, we're simply just gonna replace whatever sin we got rid of with a new sin. We'll just keep replacing sins. What we need is what the old Scottish preachers called an expulsive affection. An affection that is so beautiful and so much of a centerpiece that it floods out all of the other affections. A commitment that is so deep and robust that nothing competes with it. That's the only way to put things down that we have picked up. You see, Paul hated sin, but he hated sin because he loved Jesus. (laughs) Paul loved Jesus, and so he hated sin. That's the order of it all. If you want to change, and I mean really change, where it matters, just Ask the general, the king. Ask Jesus to ruin all competing commitments by becoming the one overwhelming affection above all affections. As you know, you can pray prayers that sound just like that. Jesus, I just don't love you very much. I feel dry. I want to love you so much that it puts all of my other loves in order. I want to have such a deep affection for you that it rivals all affections. Do whatever it takes, Lord ruin me for anything besides you you know you can do that today this day you can ask God to amaze you and fascinate you you can beg him to reorder all commitments to reorder all affections to change you you can do that today this day you can turn from a life of learned helplessness let's just resolve to walk the face of this earth saying what's the use which by the way just calls the empty tomb a liar what's the use it's to say that God's Spirit has no power. That, friend, requires repentance. It requires a turning. Listen, friend, even if you feel dry today, trust that your after and your before are not the same. Not because of how you feel or how you've been able to behave lately, but because of the life, death, and life of Jesus Christ. You are not the same person anymore. You're not the same person anymore, any more than Jesus is a dead body. Think about that. Just as much as Jesus is alive, you are different. Just as much as he stands by the victorious father, you can change. You are different. That's how certain it is. That's how certain it is. We have so much to be thankful for because of that. We have so much to be thankful for. You see, it's not a dusty doctrine. It is the application for how we become new beings in a broken world. And listen, I know that there's a lot of people, Paul called them unbelievers. Maybe you recognize that. Maybe you're watching. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're watching as someone sent this to you. You'd say you're searching. You're looking. You're curious. It's important for you to know that Saul's salvation happened suddenly, but it actually wasn't all that sudden at the same time. I mean, it did happen in an instant. At the same time, Saul was roving and raging and breathing murderous threats and killing and torturing. At the same time he was doing that, God apparently was goading him. Go- There's a word we don't use anymore, right? Any more than anyone uses a harmonica, we don't use the word goad very much. But some of you know what a goad is. It's just a long, pointy stick. Farmers and and, and such, they would poke their, their animals that were hooked up to a yoke, something to plow, they would poke it to keep that thing in line because eventually the animal's getting tired of being poked just relents just gives in right they're done kicking against the goads this is Jesus's way of saying it's foolish to resist my will it's hard to kick against the goads he says it's not asking a question it's making a statement it's hard he's basically saying it's foolish to run the other way you see Jesus was guiding Saul we don't know specifically how this happened. We don't know the specifics. We could guess, right, to, to some degree. We mentioned a few weeks ago that his sight of what had happened to Stephen as the first martyr, it, it appears that it might have stained him a little bit. He does reference it later on in the book of Acts. It obviously stuck out. The Stephen, who is, who is declaring the gospel and showing in power what the gospel was, being stoned to death, Men and women were grabbing rocks and throwing it at him hard enough to kill him. And in the moment, as he's crumbling to his knees, he cries out a blessing of forgiveness on them. He wants the Lord to save them. And Saul watched the whole thing. He had to have walked away from that thinking, well, I wouldn't have done that. I mean, that guy was humble and yet stunning at the same time. He was weak weak. And oddly, at the same time, powerful. And maybe that's the same way it is for you. Maybe you've seen a person that has exhibited just a glimmer, just a shadow, an echo of the character of Jesus Christ. Enough for you to say, wow, that's different. I don't think I would have done that. What, why did that person do that? Why are they so different than me? And maybe that has left a mark on you. I think another goad, another sharp stick for him, was religion simply wasn't working. With all his attempts to be righteous, his heart was broken and toxic and he knew it. Totally polished on the outside, very impressive but very ruined on the inside. His heart was wicked and he knew this. I mean, Saul knew what it was like to get to a day 106 of his resolutions and be unable to change his heart. He totally knew what that was about. He couldn't change. Learned helplessness, immune to change. And maybe this is you. Whenever you're honest with yourself, Your hopes to be impressive and righteous before God have failed. Here's good news for you, if that's the case and this is you. Not only death died on resurrection morning, but so did broken religion. And when I say religion, I mean all of our failed attempts to reach up and ascend to God. You see, self-righteousness, which is embedded in religion, says I do things so God will come close to me. But Christianity says God has come close to me, so I'm free to enjoy doing things. Very different. I didn't just reorder some words. It's a very different heart. Self-righteous religion says if I fail, God will recede and pull away from me. But Christianity says if I fail, God is close at hand as a father with wide open arms who adores and loves and carries mercy and grace. Self-righteous religion says I have to climb to God by my behavior. My performance becomes the rungs in which I ascend to God. Christianity says God has descended and come to us and behaved for us because we couldn't behave. Self-righteous religion says God is to be impressed. Christianity says Jesus is impressive and he comes to be enjoyed. To be enjoyed. Maybe this is you stained by doubtful religion, trying so hard to be clean, trying so hard to be likable in God's eyes kicking against the will of God, kicking against the goads. But if that's you, just how did you get to this moment if it wasn't for God goading you? How do you hear words that are coming out of my mouth and out of a mouth from 1855 years ago and out of the Bible without God goading you? Is he not goading you? You have a decision before you because for you, history hinges here. The same powerful Spirit of God that hovered above the chaotic waters in creation. The the same Spirit of God that filled the mouths of prophets, that raised a king, a general from the tomb. In our hero Jesus, the same Spirit of God is active in his people, changing his people from the inside out. You know, your body will age and your soul will get younger. Isn't that interesting? Fresher? More joyful? more lively, more tender, more encouraged, more fascinated. Will you join the people of an empty tomb? Will you become one of the Easter people where hallelujah is our song? Will you become a people of the empty tomb with us? Friend, just know I've been praying for you all week. been praying just for you. And I know people can change. I know people can change. It can happen today.